Ever meet an old friend after a long absence? The kind of friend that uh, you're able to quickly just pick up where you left off and, and continue that conversation that maybe you had with them months ago, maybe even years ago. Friends like that are few and far between. That's a little bit of what we're going to be doing this morning. Uh, as you walked in through the foyer this morning, undoubtedly you saw a new poster out there, the one that's on the screen behind me, uh, Songs for the Summer. We've been investing a lot of time in the book of Romans, uh, as I said a couple of weeks ago, 15 sermons just in chapter 8 alone. So we've been kind of plowing the ground as we've gone through Romans, and it's been great. But uh, for the last few years now, during the summertime, New Life takes a bit of a break from, from whatever series we're in, and we invest some time just looking at a psalm a week. Well, there's 22 verses in Psalm 33, and I'd invite you to turn there. Some of this will be on the screen. Most of it is, and all of it, as a matter of fact, will be right in front of you with your Bibles, however, whatever, whatever form you're using here this morning. But those 22 verses are just packed with so much stuff, so it's going to be a bit of a challenge uh, to get through that. Uh, let's look at the first three verses, which were actually our call to worship this morning. Let me read them to us again. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Psalm 33 is a hymn of praise, as Taylor just mentioned. The entire psalm is given over for the purpose of facilitating praise and worship amongst God's people, the people of Israel at that time. Now, what I want you to notice as you... Uh, look at this psalm, those first three verses. I want you also to back up one verse. Back up to Psalm 32. Look at verse 11. Now I've put them up on the screen side by side so you can see it as well. Psalm 32 ends with this exhortation. And it's an exhortation from David. We know that because Psalm 32 is ascribed to David. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And then look how Psalm 33 begins. It begins right on the heels of that. It's almost as if uh, this Psalm 33 was written in order to, to flesh out or in order to, uh, to fulfill the exhortation of David. Do you see that? Do you see the connection there? Now, we don't know um, exactly who wrote Psalm 33. There are actually ten different Hebrew manuscripts that ascribe Psalm 33 to David simply because it's so closely connected. But we're not sure of the authorship. It doesn't really matter. We know the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author, right? But whoever actually wrote it, we're not exactly sure. But it's clear that Psalm 33 is an extension of Psalm 32. It flows right out of Psalm 32. And we'll see that this morning. There are several other uh, verses here that are, that are connected between these two songs. But the shout for joy, the righteous, the upright, those are things that are clearly there. Psalm 32 is what's called a maskil. Your, your Bibles might even say that. A maskil is a song or psalm that was designed to instruct. 
It was designed to give wisdom. It was designed to give insight, to make someone wise. And the focus of Psalm 32, if you glance back at it, is it's all about forgiveness. It's all about the joy that comes when someone has finally confessed their sin. David finally confessed his sin, and as a result of that, the joy that emanates from that. In fact, look at verse 1 of Psalm 32, just for a minute to make this connection. David says, Blessed or happy, joyful, is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So, Psalm 32 describes the joy that a person feels when they have confessed their sin, his or her sin, and they've been restored to right relationship with God. And, of course, anyone who has experienced God's forgiveness, a natural expression is is thankfulness, right? Is is joy, would be praise, right? (laughs) Hopefully that's the case for us. And many of us in this room this morning have experienced God's grace. We've experienced the forgiveness of God's grace. We're going to celebrate communion at the end of this morning's service. And the reason we do that is to commemorate the fact that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus spilled His blood to cover our sins. And so as a result of that, like David, we're thankful. We feel joyful, right? And that's the whole point really, of what Psalm 33, the one we're looking at this morning, is going gonna, is gonna, to uh, do for us this morning. I like to call Psalm 32, because it's an instruction psalm, I like to call Psalm 32 a lesson plan on forgiveness. Well, if Psalm 32 is a lesson plan on forgiveness, then Psalm 33 is what I would call a primer for proper praise. On the heels of forgiveness, a primer for proper praise. We discover how we are to give praise. We discover why we are to give praise. We discover who receives our praise. Before we go any further, I want to define praise because we we tend, us pastor types, we tend to throw words around like that. And if you're new here this morning and you're not new to the church, I don't want to be guilty of using, you know, church ease, church speakease. Praise some synonyms: uh, glorify, uh, exalt, honor. I mean, we do it in everyday life. Hopefully, husbands, right? We do it with our brides. I'm constantly, continually praising Debbie, right, in her presence. <laughs> Just way too many chuckles on that, all right? That, we're, guys, we're doing that, right? We're doing that. We're, so, so praise is not unique. Praise is not unusual. Praise is something we do. You go to a sporting event. You see something happen that's just amazing on the pitch or the field or the court, and you praise. You give honor. You give, you give, you give tribute. You exalt what has just occurred. C.S. Lewis, um, the great uh, author of the 20, uh, 20th century, wrote a little book called Reflections on the Psalms. A lot of people don't even know that exists. But in that book, he defines praise as inner health made audible. You know, only C.S. Lewis could turn a phrase like that. Inner health made audible. Well, if our inside has has experienced the forgiveness of God's grace, then we make that audible through praise. Now, before we take kind of a deep dive into Psalm 33, 
I want to just give a quick overview. I want you to notice that the first three verses which we've just read um, are bookended. They're at the front of the psalm, but I want you to flip back to the end of the psalm, and I want you to notice uh, verses 20 through 22. Let me read these to us right now. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. The, the psalm itself is bookended. It's bookended by an invitation to praise in the first three verses. But then it ends with this affirmation of trust. And that's where we're going to head. We're going to head through Psalm 33 and we're going to, we're going to talk about praise and that's going to be our focus, a primer on proper praise. But it's got to lead to something. And what it leads to is this closing affirmation that we trust God as a result of giving, uh, giving praise uh, to Him. The middle verses, verses 4 through 19, again, just by way of kind of an overview, they provide the rationale, these are my words, the, the substance, the motivation for our praise in 4 through 19. Now, this is Hebrew poetry. This is a song. It's not like the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, which is very theologically oriented, very logically laid down. This is poetry. This is song. But in verses 4 and 5, I think there are some clues as to how this, uh, this psalm kind of falls into three different specific categories. Verses 4 through 5 read, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, I've highlighted those three, three words the word of the Lord, the work of the Lord, and what I'm going to call the heart of the Lord. His steadfast love. And we'll define that in a little more detail in just a minute. But in a sense, you could say that this, this song kind of falls into those three categories. Now, if, if I were to come back a year from now and preach a message on this exact same psalm, it may sound totally different. Why? Because God's word is so rich. And I'm not going to profess to, to say this morning that I, that I uh, th- this is the this is the essence of the psalm. I think it is for today at least. But God's word is so rich. That's why we read God's word continuously. That's why we study God's word over and over again. That's why in in our church we teach, we preach God's word because there's so much that we can't fathom the depths of God's word. But for today, let's just say that. Uh, these three uh, kind of foci, the word, the work, and the heart of the Lord, are what we're going to be focusing on primarily. Now, I want to jump into some of the details. I want to give you some details here. In fact, I want to give you six specific details that emerge out of this text. The first one is this, is that we are praising God as a result of forgiveness. Praising God flows from being forgiven. It flows from forgiveness. And what I'm essentially doing there is we're connecting this verse 1, we're connecting this psalm to Psalm 32, what we are, we've already looked at. What, what specifically, though, I want you to notice here is, I love this phrase, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous, because praise befits the upright. The New American Standard Version uses the term becoming. Praise is becoming to the upright. It's, it's fitting. Why? 
Because we've been forgiven. God's forgiveness, forgiveness makes us upright. And as a result of that, praise is fitting. Now this term befit, we don't typically use that word a lot. But this term comes from an original Hebrew word that whoever was writing the psalm was using. Um, the root actually comes from the same word for habitation or abode, a place where you would live. And over time and over usage, it morphed into meaning something that was lovely, something that was beautiful, something that was seemly, something that was fitting. Debbie and I were talking about this just last night. And she made the comment, I'll give her credit for this, and it it makes total sense here. Praise might very well be the very best beauty treatment we can come up with. So guys, when you're shaving in the morning, combing your hair, something I haven't done for decades, uh, when you're getting ready, brushing your teeth, ladies, if you're putting on makeup, whatever, how about we put on praise as well? It's the best beauty treatment. It's kind of like a smile. It goes with any age, young, old, male, female. Praising God flows from forgiveness, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a lovely thing. It is befitting. It is becoming of us who've been forgiven. The second thing I want to call our attention, it's also in these first three verses, is that praising, we praise God by all means possible. Now think about this morning already. We have praised God through a variety of means. Spoken words, singing, we've had different instruments that have been involved. And that's exactly what these first three verses are also indicating, is that we praise God by all means possible. In fact, in these first three verses, let's look at the first two verses to begin with, there are, there are actually five commands. There are five imperatives. Shout for joy. Give thanks. Make melody. We'll look at the other two in just a minute. Uh, what's fascinating to me, though, is that these five commands or five imperatives are actually given as a second person plural, which, if you stop and think about that, what's indicated there is that praise is something that happens best in what? In community. We praise best communally. You know, at home, we might just be making a joyful noise unto the Lord as we're getting ready for the morning. But here, together, collectively, our joyful noise gets mixed in with people who really know how to sing. And we end up giving wonderful, beautiful praise because praise seems to fit best within a worshiping community. It's interesting. This term, shout for joy, it literally means shout for joy. Scared some of you, didn't I? The reason I did that, though, is because the term itself is, is, uh, derives from a word that would mean the sound of, a, of, of violent winds hitting a large mast on a ship or like a large flagpole. Have you ever heard that? you ever heard the wind whipping around a mast or a flagpole? It, 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 uh, it literally means, it came to mean to vibrate the voice. Just like the mast would vibrate in the wind, we vibrate the voice. We shout for joy. Now notice also that with those voices come instruments. In fact, 29 times in the Psalms, Either instruments are specifically mentioned or 
it's stated that a tune is to be ascribed to a prayer. In fact, the Hebrews did a lot of singing when they prayed. Uh, We know this because when they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, uh, the Babylonians actually asked them to sing us a song. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. One author has put it this way, Song brings our prayers into rhythm and harmony with the members of God's community. Wow, I love that. And, you know, this church is blessed. We're blessed with an abundance of musicians that guide us through this. I just love the fact that we were able to sing the lyrics of this song this morning. That's amazing when you stop and think about that. The, the scene in verses 1 through 3, here's the two other imperatives. Sing to him a new song and play skillfully on the strings. Interesting, the, the imperative there is not play. The imperative there is skillfully. So in other words, skillfully play the instruments. And again, because I'm, I have the opportunity and it's here in the text, I want to commend our musicians who do that very thing. On more than one occasion... I have uh, I've talked after the service to maybe one of our drummers or, or a bass player or lead guitar or, or keyboardist and thanked them for actually worshiping along with us. Debbie and I have been in some churches where the, uh, the musicians, they get paid and they, they may or may not actually be believers. We've been in churches like that and they just play. They, they play, their, they do their thing. That's not so here. Our musicians worship, they praise. I've I've watched a drummer drum away and sing the lyrics to a song. That's amazing. I love that. And if you notice that on a Sunday morning, I'd encourage you to give a word of encouragement to one of our musicians as well. The, The scene in these verses, it's noisy. It's joyous. You've got musicians. You've got singers. uh, You've got people uh, together uh, worshiping God, joining in praise. The voices are enthusiastic. The voices are joyful. The lyrics are fresh. Uh, the instruments are played with skill. And, and we have people that are offering their best. Just an aside here, it, it appears that there are three important qualities of corporate worship. And, and we have them here at New Life. Freshness, this new song, uh, something that's sung as a result of a fresh awareness of God's grace. Skill and fervor. I love it when the instruments stop and the congregation is still singing and we're singing with fervor. You remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees when they, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, he had just come in and people are, are praising him and his, the Pharisees say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, tell them to stop. And what was Jesus' response? Hey, if, if they stop, if they're silent, the very stones will cry out in praise. So we have an opportunity uh, to, uh, to praise God in lieu of the rocks and the stones doing such. What's, what's sad to me, though, it doesn't apply here, but what's sad to me, though, is so many churches, you'll sing a song like we did this morning, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. O oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. All, who, all ye who hear, now to His temple draw near, join me in glad adoration. We sing that, and if you look around at many congregations, it looks like the congregation was weaned on a pickle. They're just going through the motions, just singing, singing the words, not really understanding. 
a conference was held at a Presbyterian church in an unnamed city. And folks were given helium-filled balloons and told to release them at any point in the service when they felt like expressing the joy that was in their hearts. You see, Presbyterians aren't free to say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Now, I can get away with that because I, I preached in many Presbyterian churches. I taught at a Presbyterian college for many years. Uh, that's kind of the rap on Presbyterians. Everything is done in, in order and everything is done properly. Well, occasionally throughout this service, this is a real story, by the way, occasionally throughout this service, balloons ascended. Occasionally. But when the service was over, a third of the balloons were unreleased. <laughs> Let your balloon go. All right? Release the balloon. Okay? That's, that's really the moral. Amen? There you go. Okay. So we, we praise God by any and all means possible. Now, as, as the psalmist really gets into the meat of this psalm, uh, there's uh, three other things that I want us to notice. And the first is that we, we praise God for His Word. Back there again in, in verse 4, the Word of the Lord is upright. It's straight. It's level. And then the psalmist goes on in verses 6 through 9 to begin to describe the power of God's Word. We praise God for His Word, His straight and level Word, because it's powerful. Uh, Creation occurs as a result of God's Word. You remember Genesis chapter 1, the story of creation. Eight times in that chapter, God says, let there be. And it it happens. It comes to be, just simply by the spoken Word. In verse 6, there's a wonderful, um, what we call Hebrew parallelism. Hebrew poetry is not like our English poetry, in that you don't necessarily have to have rhyme but you do often have what's called parallelism, where the second line of a, of a sentence, of a couplet, uh, emphasizes the first line. We see this in verse 6. Look at that. The word of the, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Okay, that's the first statement. The second statement, the parallel statement, which further enhances it, by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Interesting, the term breath is the same word which we translate spirit. And if you look back in Genesis chapter 1, obviously the Holy Spirit was engaged in creation as well. Also in verse 9, for he spoke and it came to be. A great statement of creation. Second line, he commanded and it stood firm. Another thing I want us to notice here is that our worship, our praise of God is based on God's Word. If you're taking notes, you might jot down, our worship is Word-based. We don't just come in and just say things and just kind of get excited about stuff and give praise to God. We give praise to God, but we give praise to God out of His Word. And again, the beauty of And the attraction of this church, at least for my family, my bride and I, is that this church worships, this church gives praise based on God's Word. Our worship is Word-based. So we praise God for His Word. Starting in verse uh, verse 10, 10 through 12, and 16 through 17, we praise God for His works. Look back at verse 4 again, the end of it. All his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The term faithfulness speaks of God's 
steadiness speaks of God's stability. Um, righteousness and justice speaks of righteousness speaks of that which is meant to be, and, it, and God fulfills it the way it's designed to be. Justice speaks of of His decisions as the Judge of the earth. They are always just. They are always right. We praise God for His works. Now, I want us to notice that God's word and God's work are inseparable. God says something, and it happens. His works emanate out of His statements, out of His Word. God's works also um, are based on His counsel. Another term for counsel, another way to translate that would be on His plans, on His purposes. God's works are always based on His agenda, not our agenda, but His agenda, His plans, His purposes. Verses 10 10 through 12. The Lord brings the counsel... Of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. But the counsel or the purposes, the plans of the Lord stand forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, whose the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So in spite of the opposing plans of other nations, of other uh, men, leaders in the world, women, who would put themselves up on a pedestal and say, follow my purposes, follow my plans. In spite of that, God's enduring purposes will not be frustrated. In fact, He frustrates the plans of those in leadership in this world. And then, as, a, as the psalm would do, it's going to skip over a section, so skip to verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. God does not work through the strength of men. God does not work through the schemes of men. This reminds me of what uh, the Apostle Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians. You know, Paul wrestled for most of his ministry career, his ministry life, he wrestled with some something. We're not exactly sure what it was. It's called a thorn in the flesh. It could have been a physical ailment. We don't know exactly what it was. But he wrestled with that. He struggled with that. And the answer that he got from the Lord Jesus was this. My grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We praise God for His works. We also, though, praise God for his heart. Now, again, that's, that's, uh, that's Tim's word, but it's based on this wonderful term that we're going to look at in a little more detail here, this wonderful term of God's covenant love. His, the ESV says God's steadfast love. I want us to notice, though, that there, there's a movement in this psalm, as you would expect, as, as the psalmist is singing through these truths about God. We've gone from God creating all things, and He's in charge of all things by the power of His Word, to we see God ruling over the affairs of nations, and we see God at work in the affairs of nations, and now finally, we see God caring oh so deeply, with steadfast love, caring for individuals. So this isn't just about some macroscopic thing like creation or the the movement of history, but God also cares for individuals. Back in verse 5, the end of verse 5, 
is this phrase, steadfast love. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Other versions might translate that as loving kindness. This is a wonderful term. This is the... I don't like throwing Hebrew words around because they're difficult to pronounce, but this one is easy. This is hesed. This is God's covenant love. This is God's steadfast love. This is God's unfailing love. And it's used throughout the Old Testament to speak of the the kind of love that God had for the nation of Israel, the kind of love that caused him to make a unilateral covenant with them. It's It's his hesed, his covenant love. It's at the heart of the Hebrew religion. And you know what's interesting is that it, 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 it presupposes that God has created everything. It presupposes Him as the wonderful Creator through His Word. And it presupposes that God is, is in control. He's, he is sovereign over human history. God's heart, God's steadfast love and compassion for His people um, is evidenced in verses 13 14 and 15, with four different words. And again, oftentimes our English translations, we, we miss some of, the, some of the, the richness of these words. But look at this with me. In verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Four, literally, separate terms that we're translating look or observe. And and there's movement here. It goes from kind of just a general God looking out. God God looking at at men and women. The second word, the, the term translated sees literally has within it the idea of inspecting something. God is, isn't just casually observing. He's, he's looking a little deeper. He's inspecting what's going on. Verse 14, we translate the word looks again, but it's a different term. And, it, and it's a word that means to stare at something and to gaze intently at something. God's covenant love, His steadfast love, you could say, imp- uh, compels Him to to invest time in, in really kind of gazing at His creation, at His, his people, and, and gazing intently to see what's going on. And then in verse 15, um, fortunately we've used a different term to translate the Hebrew. We, we use the term observes. But it, it means to consider something. It means to perceive something in the midst of that consideration. And it means to understand something. And so God isn't just watching us, kind of aloof, afar, No, he's intimately involved with his creation, specifically men and women, and he's looking, he's inspecting, he's staring or gazing intently, and he's understanding what's going on. It reminds me of what the prophet uh, Hanani said to Asa, king of Judah, 2 Chronicles 16, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. We also... uh, Notice in verses 18 and 19 in this passage that the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. This is reminiscent of what David said in Psalm 32.8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. In other words, this shows a Creator God who is intimately involved with His people. 
and wants to be intimately involved. And he's watching them. He's observing them. He's there because of his unfailing, steadfast love. So we praise God. We praise God for his heart. We praise God for his steadfast love. Finally, in the conclusion of this psalm, in those last three verses, the, 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 the statement that we've already read a couple times this morning, praising God results in something. Praising God doesn't become just an end in itself, but it, be, it results in something. It produces something. It produces patient, joyful, hopeful trust. In the previous section, the emphasis on uh, God's word and works and his heart is really um, an, an exhortation for us to trust him because of his word, to trust him because of his deeds, his works on our behalf, and to trust him because of his love for us. The concluding tone, and let me read it to us one more time, the concluding tone here is much more quiet than the first three verses. The first three verses were almost on the, on the border of being raucous, just loud and joyful and excited. Verses 20 through 22, as we wait, as we trust, as we hope, it's much more quiet. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Praising God strengthens our inner peace, strengthens our power, increases our joy, gives us greater confidence in the Lord, and ultimately produces hope. Our praise focuses on God, the giver of those things, the giver of joy, and the giver of hope. In fact, the term the Lord, or Jehovah, is used 13 times in these 22 verses. And then on top of that, there's 26 personal pronouns that point to Him. In other words, God is the focus of our worship. Not what He's done for me lately. I'm thankful for what God has done for me lately. But no, the focus is on God Himself. Unless our praise and worship focus on the character of God, then we've ignored the person who ought to be the center of true worship. And for us as Christians, for us, those of us who profess to follow Jesus, who is that center of our praise and worship? It's Jesus. It, it is, again, a not a distant God, but it's Jesus who came, God in the flesh, and lived among us, lived just like us, and then died for us. And as we learn to more effectively praise God, then our trust in His character will be marked by hopeful waiting and faithful endurance, not some sort of panicked action. This, in fact, is the correct posture of praise for God's people. I'm always looking for illustrations, ways to illustrate God's Word to help help it make sense. And you know what? I, I wasn't coming up with an illustration for this last point. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me, wait a minute, I don't have to go outside of Scripture There are beautiful scriptural illustrations for this. Let me read two. The first one is in Exodus chapter 14. You remember the story? Moses had led the the people, the Hebrews, uh, they were going to become a nation, out of Egypt, out of captivity. And they're up against the Red Sea, and they turn around, and who's coming after them? Pharaoh. Pharaoh and his armies. And so they're they're up against it. They're, They're caught betwixt and between. 
and they start to grumble and complain and they start to panic. Listen to Moses' response. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. That's what praising God does, is it, it, it creates that kind of response to a very difficult situation. Or how about Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 20? I, I love this passage. It's, it's rich. Jehoshaphat uh, says to his people, they're surrounded by, by enemies, the Moabites, the Ammonites. But he tells the people as they're going out to battle, he says, you will not need to fight in this battle. They're all geared up. They're ready to go to war. And Jehoshaphat, the king, says, you're not going to need to fight in this battle. Why? Because all you need to do is stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed and the Lord will be with you. I love that. You know, it's not enough for us to walk in here on a Sunday morning and, and just sing and praise and worship and, and get kind of a good feeling about that. That's, 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 not, that's not what this is about. Feelings can betray us, right? Feelings are temporary. But if we leave here week in and week out with more love in our hearts for God's people, with more love for Him, if we leave here trusting Him more as a result of being here, if we leave here having a greater faith and a greater hope in Jesus, then guess what? Worship has accomplished what God desired. Praise has accomplished what God desires because Praising God leads to that. Praising God leads to more trust, more faith, and therefore more hope. Well, whenever you're uh, studying God's Word, I'd encourage you to be constantly on the lookout for Jesus. And even in the Psalms, sometimes it's a little more difficult, but I want us, in conclusion here, as as we kind of gear ourselves for communion, I want to mention three things that just bubble to the surface out of this passage. The first one is the reference to the word of the Lord, right? We, we praise God for the word of the Lord. Well, that should remind us of a New Testament passage in John chapter 1, fourth gospel in the New Testament. It reminds us of a, of a name, of a name for Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and we know from that verse that John is referring to Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So we see here kind of maybe a veiled reference to the fact that, yes, Jesus is here because He is the Word of God. And then in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I would include what David is is writing here in Psalms and and even Psalm 33. God is speaking to us through these Old Testament passages. But in these last days, Hebrews says, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He created the world. So again, Jesus is present even in this passage, Psalm 33. Also, in verse 20 of this psalm, is the term help is used. I didn't go into detail on that. But that, that term, is, is he's, he's referred to as our help. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. That term help is usually translated deliverer. In the rest of Psalms, it's usually translated deliverer. And who is our great deliverer from sin? 
other than Jesus. This is why we focus this morning. This is why we have this unique opportunity once a month, first Sunday of the month, to invest some time um, in observing the Lord's Supper, observing communion. But probably the best example of Jesus in this text is that great term. It's used three times, hesed, God's covenant love. Because this morning, we're going to celebrate a new covenant. And who's that new covenant connected to? Jesus. A new covenant in His blood. No longer the blood of bulls and goats, but Jesus' blood has been shed on our behalf. So yes, uh, Jesus is in is in the, the, fine, the fine print, so to speak. Before I lead us in, in prayer about uh, communion, uh, let me just say this. Th- this is, these tables that are up front, there's tables in the back, there's a table up, up in the balcony. This is the Lord's table. This is not New Life's table. Th- these tables are not exclusively for members or regular attenders of New Life Church. But... The Lord's table is for those who profess allegiance to Jesus, who trust in His grace alone for salvation. So if you're here this morning, if you're a regular attender, a member, or if you're brand new, if you're a follower of Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, then you're welcome. You're welcome at this table. And if you're not, then I want to encourage you to stay in your seat and... Think about what you've heard this morning and maybe even pray about that and ask God to reveal himself further to you so that you might come into relationship with him. During this next song, um, I'm going to ask you to get up from your, uh, from your chairs and to pick up the elements at one of the stations. If, if you're here on the, on the floor, it, it might, if you're coming forward, it might be best to come down the center aisle and go back to your seats down the side aisles. Um, I'm going to ask you to, to return to your seat with those elements, the bread and, and the, the cup of juice, and just hang on to it so that we can take this all together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're amazed sometimes at how words written so long ago, centuries ago, <clears throat> still resonate clearly resonate loudly with truth today. And so that's our prayer. Our prayer, Father, is that through the power of your Holy Spirit and by the shed blood of your Son, Jesus, that you would take the truth of your Word, take the truth of Psalm 33, and drive it home deeply into our lives. May we become people of praise, people who praise you naturally, freely, openly, giving you the glory for all you've done. We thank you for this opportunity of continuing our praise and worship this morning by observing, by observing uh, the, 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 the fact of your death for us and the fact of your resurrection. So we commit this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.